today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up, high, up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good that we are here? Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising um, from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to store all things. And how is, is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. If you grew up in the 80s, one of your favorite movies has to be Back to the Future. Um, is Back to the Future anyone's top 10 list? It's one of those movies that whenever it's on TV, I, it, it just makes me stop and I have to watch it. Um, I was watching a documentary on it, and Back to the Future, the movie, the premise is actually not about time travel. Back to the Future, the whole premise, based on Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, who wrote the story, it's about discovering what were my parents really like when they were growing up. I think Bob Gale went to visit uh, his home and he saw a photo album of his dad and he always wondered, what, does, what was dad like in high school? And that's how he started writing the story. To see how people really are like, it's really eye-opening. And the whole movie is so funny because the comedy and the adventure comes because what the parents told them they were like in high school didn't really match uh, what they were. And it also gave, you know, Marty McFly a chance to see uh, what kind of childhood their parents, parents had. I want to ask you this morning, in the same way, have you wondered, what is God really like? Have you ever wondered, what is Jesus, what was Jesus truly like if I met with him? And I know we don't have a time machine. It would be cool, though, to go back in time and see Jesus ministering, see of Galilee, walking around in Bethany, going into Jerusalem, what was Jesus really like? And the good news is, the Bibles really capture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Synoptic Gospels, really what Jesus was like. And so today, we have this uh, uh, kind of, our culture is, your truth is whatever you make it to be, and it's, a lot of it is driven by our experiences. And so when I was a youth pastor in New Jersey, uh, in the 90s, Christian marketing tried really hard to be edgy and cool. So they sold T-shirts and merchandise that were really kind of lame. And a lot of them were cringy. But one of the most cringiest and disturbing things for me was there was a T-shirt. And it had a picture of Jesus. 
And the words on top were, Jesus is my homeboy. And I, I was like trying to understand that from a different angle. And no matter what angle I came, I couldn't understand that to be cool. The word homeboy is defined as uh, someone in your same peer group, a fellow member of a gang, like, like you're a pod, you're a posse, you're a, you're a group. And so he's a member of your group. He's my homie. He's my brother. And I get that because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is my brother. We share the inheritance. We're fellow heirs with Christ. I get that. But the whole term homeboy makes it sound like Jesus is equal to us. And so it just never really settled with me that how should I look at Jesus? What is Jesus truly like? So I keep going back to this, and I, I, I share this a few times, but I keep going back to the Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And I just, this is ingrained and singed in me the way that I should see Jesus. Um, Mr. Beaver is talking to a little girl named Susie, and Mr. Beaver says, the ruler of this land, Narnia, is Aslan. And she's like, oh, I'd like to meet him. And Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. And this is what she says, oh, I thought he was a man. And she asks this question, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so Aslan is not safe. He's not a chum. He's not, a, he's not a, like a friendly, just a teddy bear. But he's good, and he's the king. Jesus is the king. C.S. Lewis wanted us to get a picture that Jesus is God, and he's approachable, he's relatable, he's loving. Certainly not the same thing as safe. And the image we have of Jesus should not be something you and I formulate based on our experiences. To me, Jesus is like, you know, just, just a little girlfriend or friend that I have, and he's my teddy bear. He's my security blanket. And I think that's okay when you're little and you're trying to understand this concept of the triune God. But this is why God gives us scripture, that all 66 books of the Bible point to Jesus Christ. And if you want an explicit scripture of Jesus, we have the Synoptic Gospels. Just curious, how many have ever heard of the term the Synoptic Gospels? The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it just says sin, optic. They, they share the same view and the stories of Jesus in his ministry. John is kind of set alone, so John doesn't get included. John is a gospel, but he's not a, considered a Synoptic Gospel. And so in today's text, we share one story that some of you may have heard of the transfiguration of Jesus, where we get to see Jesus, a glimpse of how he truly is. So let's turn. Some say that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important thing that we've ever witnessed on earth. And right under it, some say the transfiguration might be just after that. And so it, this story is in Matthew 17. Luke chapter 9, and today's scripture that Ashley read, Mark 9. And so I want to share what is it, what are the significance of the transfiguration, and what does God want us to know about it? So first, transfiguration of Jesus Christ, if you, as we read it in the context, it tells us this clear message. Jesus did not come to be a buddy. Jesus did not come to just show a model of how we should live and get along. 
he did do that. He did help sinners and help the poor. He healed the sick. He healed the lame. But Jesus, the transfiguration explicitly shows us Jesus came for one purpose. He came on a mission to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. Well, if you have your Bibles, in Mark chapter 8, right before today's text, Jesus is telling Peter and the disciples something very troubling. And you may have heard this story. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be, su- go through suffering, betrayed, killed, and on the third day rise again. Now, Peter being Peter, do you remember what Peter does? Peter hears Jesus say that, and what does Peter do? In his best of intention, because Peter is Peter can't keep his mouth shut. He says, the Bible tells us in Mark, he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus. How dare you say something like that? That's never going to happen to you. Jesus, you're talking crazy. You're not going to die. And what does Jesus do right away? Jesus says in Mark 8:33 to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. I mean, that's a little mini message in there. Whenever you, even in your best of intentions, church, well, I didn't mean to, or when we try to discern the world and our actions by our own wisdom alone and not discover the will of God, the fear is and the concern, danger is, we could actually be opposing God by doing it with our our best of our intentions. That's Peter. So how do we, Safeguard against that. God, what is your will? God, what are you telling us? Jesus, what is it that you're trying to relate to us? So anyway, Jesus clearly has this goal. Jesus, son of man, is going to come. He'll be betrayed. He'll suffer. He'll die. And he'll rise again. And so a couple, couple days later, six days later now, Jesus gets Peter, James, and John. And they go up to a mountain. And now we're told... They go up to a high mountain, and we don't know exactly from Mark why they went, but Luke tells us why they went to the mountain. Luke chapter 9, his version says, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went up to the mountain to pray. So Jesus is going on a trip, prayer meeting. And so original tradition says Jesus took them to Mount Tabor, Tabor, but most modern Scholars say because of the proximity with Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus asked, who do people say I am, which happened in Caesarea Philippi, and this story came right after. And Mount Hermon is about 8,000 feet high, and Mount Tiber is only 1,200 feet high. So 1,200 is not really high mountain. So most people think it's Mount Hermon. But the point of it is Jesus went up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John, And once on the mountain, we are told he is transfigured. He is transfigured. What does that mean? And I asked a couple of people, do you guys ever hear the story transfigured? And some of them were puzzled. And so what happened was Jesus is on the mountain. And there's so many artists' depiction of this. Jesus is with Peter, James, and John. And as they're praying together with Jesus, all of a sudden, Jesus' face changes, according to Luke. And his clothes are dazzling white. And I thought, I'm a dry cleaner owner's son, so I know bleach and garments. It says, his clothes dazzle so white that not even the launderers could bleach it this white. And I said, we came close, but yeah, we can't do that supernaturally. So 
So Jesus is dazzling white, and then right next to him appears two people. Who are the two people that appeared? Moses and Elijah. And in the beginning, someone asked a great question. How did Peter know that was Moses and Elijah? Did Moses have, like, tablet, and did Elijah have his chariot? Um, I think someone logical said they could hear the conversation they were having because those three were talking together. So it's just, let's take a moment. Can you imagine Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? How's it going? Yeah, it's good. Hey, Jesus, what, what are you up to? And so what were they talking about? Luke 9 fills us in. And this is the text. This is a couple of pictures. And so you get the idea. But Luke 9 tells us what they were talking about. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And look what they were talking about. Spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word departure means his, his death. But if you take it literally, the word departure is a Greek word called exodo. What does that sound like? Exodus, leading out. Now, Moses kind of knows about Exodus, doesn't he? He was there when God used him to lead Israel out of bondage of Egypt. Exodus. They were in bondage and slaved. Moses let them out. Here's Jesus. They were talking about his exodo. He's going to lead the sinners and people out of bondage of sin. But instead of leading them, he's going to die for them. Instead of being, you know, led by God, he is God. And so this is what they were talking about. And so Jesus is not just another Moses or another Elijah. He is a far greater and better Moses. He is a far greater and better Elijah because instead of being the prophet who shares God's word, he is Logos, the living word. Jesus himself is the word in flesh, according to John. And so this living word, uh, Mark 9, 11, 13 tells us, and they asked him, why do scribes say that the first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come to restore all things and how it is written, son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. What is Jesus saying here? Just like how you treat the prophets, it all ends with me. I will die. I will suffer. I am Moses, and I am Elijah. And my journey, my purpose here in this transfiguration you saw is I have come for one mission. It is to die for the sins and to lead people out once and for all. You know, I, I share this because we have this image of Jesus that he's a, he's a, he's a nice guy. Again, again, he's a lion that's fluffy and cute. Uh, these days, I'm seeing a lot of videos from, like, Montana. People see bison, and they're like, oh, what a cute little bison. And, you know, they get, like, thrown in the air, and they're, they're Yellowstone. They're, they have no, no boundaries, and it's like, you got to take those animals seriously. Oh, cute little bear. It's like, Jesus is approachable. Jesus is loving. Jesus is humble. And we forget Jesus also is God, which is the second point of this transfiguration story. This transfiguration story tells us Jesus is undoubtedly not a servant of God. Jesus is God. I, I think we need to say that. I, I don't think this society has captured that. Can you just humor me and let's say this together. Jesus is God. Jesus is not, oh, it, oh that's, okay. I thought we were going to do it together, but 
timing was off. Okay, so Jesus is not of God. Jesus doesn't work for God. Jesus is God. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I believe Christians too, yeah, you know, and also I believe in Muhammad. Oh, yeah, I believe in, you know, our, our teacher who founded our faith. Yeah, Jesus is just like all those people. He's a great religious leader. Here's the problem. Jesus doesn't equate himself to be a teacher or a religious leader. He is God. He never gave us any other option. And so in this transfiguration story, just you look at this, and I know this is an artist's depiction, and I'm sure the actual scene was infinitely greater. When you see Jesus in this kind of image, what do you think? Oh, that's cool. He doesn't need a flashlight. I don't know. What do you think? Well, like, he's, he's, a, he's a good guy. There's something radiant about him. And look at the disciples. What are the disciples doing? They're terrified. <laughs> you know, if you look through the Bible, whenever angels appear or God appears, what do people do? God, you're here. God, oh, joy. They fall. They collapse. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. When you're before the presence of God and you see a glimpse of his whole glory, there is this inert reaction that comes out of us. Fear. Not because God's going to destroy us, but God is so awesome. He is so massive. And so both Moses are there, and they, we get a clue. It's interesting. Moses and Elijah both encountered God. And can someone tell me, where did both Moses and Elijah encounter God, specifically, geographically? On a mountain, high mountain. Do you remember Moses went up to Mount Sinai, and Moses said, I want to see your face. And God said, oh, no, you can't see my face. You'll be destroyed. But here's what I'll do. I'll put you behind a rock, and you can see my behind. Literally, that's what God says. And then he walked by. Anyway, it was so powerful that this happened. Uh, you can't read it, but let me read it. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, he was not aware, what? That his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. He was in the presence of God. God was so radiant that it rubbed off on him, which is also a, a good mini message right there. How do you grow in holiness? How do you grow to be like Christ? We need to spend time in the presence with God. And the church said, amen. That's how we grow in this holiness. Anyway, he goes on. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant. We get a theme here. And they were afraid to come near him. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face because he's trying to keep them, you know, give them mercy. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded by God, they saw that his face was radiant. Why was Moses' face radiant? Because God is this radiant, glorious being. And to spend time in intimacy with God, it changes us. And here's Elijah, the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18, one of my favorite stories. He encounters God in two ways. One is he's fighting false prophets of Baal, and they're trying to see which God will rain fire. Long story short, Baal prophets caught themselves, nothing happens. 
Elijah by himself prays, and fire comes down and licks up the altar in this glorious showing of God's presence. Elijah runs to the mountains, high mountain, and he encounters God. But in this case, God wasn't in a big radiant light. God was in a whisper. And they both encountered God on the mountain. So here's Jesus with Peter, James, and John high on top of a mountain. And what is going on? This is Mark's way of telling us that the full and perfect presence of God on earth is in Jesus Christ. To confirm this, Mark 9, 7 has this. After, after this, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Um, Bill Locke's memorial service, uh, Pastor Jeff gave an incredible message. And he shared a story of Bill Locke at one of his final Bible studies that they had. And I, I just walked away with that. And that was such a Bill Locke uh, philosophy. He didn't say much at the Bible study, but he walked away at the end of the Bible study and said this. We don't nearly take the holy glory of God seriously as we should. We don't nearly take the holiness and the glory of God as seriously, as nearly as serious as we should. If we knew God in this way, how would it change the way you and I live? And I think God is again approachable, but we're so casual. We're so sometimes irreverent. Like worship, church, take a moment. Church is about us. What am I going to get? Am I going to enjoy this service? Am I going to enjoy the music? And we made a church, we fight and kill the church and split the church because of us. What if church was literally just a place where we could come together to say, God is holy and worthy and glorious, and we give our lives and worship to God. And this is Jesus showing himself in this radiant glory to say, Peter, James, and John, I am not just a teacher. I am God. He's not one of many gods. There is no other, truly other gods. Jesus is the one and true person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. So transfiguration is showing us Jesus, guys, he's not an example or role model. He's God to be worshipped. So third, lastly, we get to this point. Peter was so scared that it tells, Mark tells us he was rambling. And he's like, hey, should we build a tent for Moses and Elijah and you? And the scripture tells us he said this because they were so terrified. He didn't know what to say. And the lesson there is when you're terrified and you don't know what to say, what should you do? Just, just be quiet. Just, Proverbs says it's better to be silent and look wise than to open your mouth and confirm that you're a fool. And so Peter opens his mouth. And so God's voice comes down and interrupts Peter and says this. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's as if God is telling Peter, shh, shh, shh. Just take this moment in. See who Jesus is. And here's what you do. Listen to him. All three versions, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have that saying where God comes in a cloud and says, listen to him. This is my beloved son. And so Peter did. What's amazing is 2 Peter, this is what Peter says. Listen to this in the eyes of Peter being at the transfiguration. He writes, 2 Peter chapter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Listen to this. For when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter finally listened, and he understood after Jesus died and rose again. Peter understood that this glorious event was not just something supernatural at Las Vegas or some, some performer sci-fi, but this was actually God. And so what Jesus does is, that holy moment, Jesus comes down and he tells them, do not tell anyone anything until after the resurrection. God tells the disciples and us today simply this. Do now the resurrection has happened. Go and tell. And the way you do that is listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, uh, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen. And so the final takeaway, and I get this from the devotional, my almost first highest you go to a mountain, you experience something great, and we're like Peter. We want to savor it. Some of you were baptized. Some of you remember when you were saved. Some of you were like, oh, that harvest crusade or that retreat. Um, I encountered God. And what you see Peter doing here is a human reaction. I want to savor this. I want to make a memorial. I want to remember what God's done. And that's good. That's Old Testament leaders did that. But what does Jesus do? He says, no, don't talk about it for now until after the resurrection. See, the point of this experience here is not for us to just go, wow. The point of it is to watch this and witness this and to tell the world that Jesus is the Son of God given to us for the salvation of the world. Now he's tied and risen again. Now he tells Peter, go. And so what we do as a church sometimes is the, what Peter does. We love this building. Oh, we have so many memories. I, I love the friends here. It's great. And so what happens to the churches that are dying is they maintain just the place where we're blessed by God. When God is saying, go. Now tell the world about what you've seen. And Peter says, everyone, I did not make this story up. This wasn't even conjured up by people. This is what we saw, and this is what we know of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a teacher. He's not just a moral example. Jesus is the Savior that everyone needs to know. And I want to ask you in this room, some of you, you go to church, but do you really know Jesus as your Savior? Do you really know Jesus as a Son of God to whom you give worship? I was moved by um, one of our Sunday school volunteers was sharing this, and he said that one of the children shared with him, a little girl said, when I grow up, I want to be a missionary. And it, all of us in the room were like, wow, that is cool. And then this thought occurred to me, should not that be the heartbeat of every single believer who's encountered Jesus, who died and rose again? who is the Savior of the world. 
Should not that be our yearning? And you don't have to be a missionary to Peru, Africa, China, but that you live your life as an apostle of Jesus Christ, declaring we have heard and beheld the glory of God. Jesus Christ did something that no one else has. This is not just a religion. This is the truth. He is the way, the life. And so what do we do when we don't know what to do? I think we do what Peter does, just silence our mouth, and we listen to the voice of Jesus Christ. And that's what all the disciples have done since, and that's how the kingdom of God went out. What does the transfiguration mean? Jesus came for us, Jesus is God, and Jesus sends us to do his mission. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are too casual with you sometimes. And so we confess the sin that maybe it's out of familiarity or comfort or just laziness or the sin nature in us. But God, I feel it in me and I know it's in us, especially after COVID. We are so casual with things that we forget that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we come together to you in this worship to just worship you in that nature, in that spirit, in that truth and reality. You are not just one God amongst many gods. You are the one true and only living God. And you're so humble and gracious and loving that you welcome all people just the way they are to you. And so in this very room, I pray that for those who have just known you as a teacher, known you as a role model or a great story, that we could turn and see the radiant glory of who you are, that we could know that through the Holy Spirit revealing it to us so we could fall at your feet, be worshipers, to be believers, and to be disciples. God, that's our prayer for our church. Help us to raise and make disciples that know and trust you, to live radically, to live humbly, generously, transforming the people around us one by one. And may you receive all the glory for that. This we pray in your name. Amen.